the Gerontological Society of America Momentum Discussions. Welcome to the Momentum Discussion podcast series, where researchers, educators, and practitioners stimulate dialogue on trends with great momentum to advance gerontology. This is a recording from a GSA webinar held on August 31st, 2020, that identified the challenge to older adults of influenza, RSV, and COVID-19 all circulating in the same season. Welcome to the webinar, Understanding RSV, Influenza, and COVID-19, Preparing for the Fall, developed by the Gerontological Society of America and supported by Johnson & Johnson Health Systems. The webinar is being recorded and will be posted on the GSA website. A notice to all attendees will be distributed once the recording is available. A question and answer session will immediately follow the live session. We will be accepting questions through the questions feature accessible on the right-hand side of your screen. My name is Elizabeth Subcheck, your moderator for today's program. I'm the director of the National Adult Vaccination Program at GSA. Our speakers and I would like to welcome you. Dr. Robin Jump is at Cape Western Reserve University and the Louis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. Dr. Lindsay Kim is at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Kip Talbot unfortunately had a last minute family emergency and sends her apologies for not being with us today. Dr. Jump and Dr. Kim will be taking over the questions that she had originally intended to answer. We're all pleased to be a part of this important program. In our session today, I will ask speakers about aspects of COVID-19, influenza, and RSV in older adults. We'll hear about challenges with diagnosis and practical strategies for keeping older adults healthy this fall. We hope that you leave today's session with increased knowledge and encourage you to share what you have learned with colleagues. Without further ado, let's dive right into the first question for Dr. Kim. Can you do a little baseline setting and tell us what RSV is and why it's so important? Hi, thanks so much um, first to Elizabeth and uh, GSA for inviting me to speak to you all today. And thank you all for joining us on this important seminar. Um, So I'm gonna start with just an overview as Elizabeth had asked about what is RSV. So RSV is respiratory syncytial virus. It is an enveloped RNA virus. It circulates seasonally, and in the U.S., the circulation period is actually slightly longer compared to influenza or flu, but it generally does overlap, and we see RSV circulating generally between October um, through March um, to early April. This does vary across the U.S. with different geographic regions having different seasonal periods. Humans are the only source of transmission of RSV. It's spread by direct or close contact via large droplets or pheromides on objects and surfaces. We also know that most people were infected with RSV as infants or young children, but repeat infections can happen in older adults. And most often it is an upper respiratory tract illness. So it can have nasal congestion, cough, shortness of breath, Um, but symptoms are often more severe than the common cold um, with less fever compared to flu. And particularly in older adults um, that don't always have um, the ability to mount fever, we don't see it very often um, in RSV uh, infections in older adults. Also, lower respiratory tract illnesses can also occur. Um, This is particularly common among immunocompromised persons, um, those with underlying heart and lung conditions, and also older adults, which we're talking about today. Um, And the complications of RSV can manifest as pneumonia, asthma, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD exacerbations, as well as congestive heart failure. In some case series, we do see mortality rates um, as high as 50% among immunocompromised adults. So we do know that RSV is severe and can cause severe illness. RSV can be detected um, in 3 to 7% of healthy older adults, and that was defined in a study as those without any pre-existing chronic lung or heart disease. Um, And then of those that had chronic lung or heart disease, we could find RSV in 4 to 10% of those adults. So it's super important, it's very important for patients, health providers, other persons who work with older adults to think about RSV because it can cause severe disease. It can cause severe outcomes in patients. 
including hospitalization and death. So we just cannot forget to think about RSV. We need to know how to recognize it, diagnose it, and treat it. And although there are no vaccines or treatments at this time, there are many in clinical development. So it does give us hope for the future for RSV treatment. Thanks so much, Dr. Kim. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about morbidity, mortality, and hospitalization of RSV in older adults? Sure. Um, so it's, it's interesting to note that RSV infections um, in adults were the first were first recognized as a result of outbreaks in long-term healthcare facilities in the 1970s. And many, most often, I get a lot of questions about, well, why should I care about RSV? You know, isn't that a, a, a pediatric disease? Does not only affect children, and the burden is quite high in kids. It's true uh, globally in the U.S. We see a lot of children, a lot of infants being hospitalized with RSV, um, but we also see lots of older adults being hospitalized and having severe outcomes. Um, and so there was a study um, done um, in Rochester that found that RSV infection can cause um, up to approximately 180,000 hospitalizations and 14,000 deaths each year in adults 65 years and older. So those are some staggering numbers. I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot of older adults being affected and having severe outcomes. And those are, those are just overall numbers. But if we look at studies of rates, we find the following. We find that um, average annual RSV hospitalization rate was about 15 per 10,000 persons aged 50 years and older. Um, and that study, um, that was a similar rate of hospitalizations compared to influenza during that respiratory season. So we do see RSV and flu, depending on the season, they can cause similar rates of hospitalization among older adults. Um, we also know that approximately 150 outpatient clinic visits um, occur due to RSV per 10,000 persons in adults 50 years and older. So it's definitely something um, that uh, makes an older adult go to their provider and say, hey, what's going on? Um, and, and we do see that that it's the uh, incidence of seeing, you know, your primary care physician or an outpatient clinic visit it, that that incidence rate increases with age, with a 70-plus year age group having about 200 outpatient clinic visits per 10,000 adults due to RSV. And then lastly, another study, just specifically knowing that older adults are at risk, but even within older adults, the higher risk groups are those that I had mentioned before with cardiopulmonary um, pre-existing conditions. So among that high-risk group of adults with 65 years and older with this chronic uh, uh, lung disease, um, there was a study that found that RSV caused about 180 hospitalizations per 10,000 persons and about 50 deaths um, per those 10,000 persons. So again, these are some numbers that are, you know, maybe not as high as what we see in flu, but it's still a lot of illness that's out there. Um, so taking all these numbers and, and all these studies into account, we know that RSV can cause disease. It can cause severe illness. It can cause um, poor outcomes in older adults. So it's super important. It's very important to think about RSV, particularly during this upcoming respiratory season and other respiratory seasons following. Thank you for that information. You mentioned that we often hear about RSV in infants, but maybe less so in older adults. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what kind of challenges there are with diagnosing RSV in older adults. Sure. So, so the main challenge really is recognizing RSV as a possibility in causing respiratory illness in older adults. Um, there is one survey of primary care physicians um, that we published at CDC with other colleagues um, in Colorado uh, looking at um, primary care physicians' knowledge of RSV at almost 60%. So they rarely, rarely considered RSV as a cause of illness in their patients that were 50 years and older. And they don't test for RSV due to the lack of treatment that they, you know, there was nothing coming down the line that they felt like, even if I know it's RSV, who cares? Um, but it is essential to figure out what it is and see if we can, um, you know, what the pathogen is, what the etiology of that illness is. So aside from educating persons who care for older adults about RSV, um, if we're talking about diagnosis in older adults, there are very good laboratory tests to detect RSV. Um, we also have tests that, that can diagnose RSV and flu at the same time, as well as others that test for many of the respiratory pathogens all at once and simultaneously. And these are now widely available um, to practitioners. 
the challenge that we have, um, particularly in older adults, about diagnosing RSV is one, again, like I had said, it's just recognizing the possibility that RSV might be causing the disease. But number two is that older adults usually have a much smaller viral load. And viral load is, um, you know, to put it in simple terms, it's a number of virus particles in the nose or throat, which is where we swap for RSV. Um, then compared to children. So children, they have a lot of snot. They have a lot of boogers. And um, there's just a lot of viral load there. So even if you swab them, maybe not close to when they got their symptoms, but even further along in their illness, we have a high probability that we're going to capture some of those viral particles and detect RSV. However, in an older adult, the baseline, the amount that starts off in their nose or their oropharynx is actually lower than children. So it is, it is, um, um, the viral load is lower. Um, and so it, it can be more difficult to diagnose it right off the bat. Also, because the viral load decreases after the initial infection or symptom onset. Um, if an adult, um, and adults tend to do this, they battle symptoms for several days and then they go and seek care if they get worse. And then potentially their provider might test for RSV, but it could be many days after the initial infection. And if that's so, then RSV may not even be detected at all because the viral load is so low. Again, thank you for that great information. Um, I think what we've all been talking about and thinking about is this co-circulation during the fall season. So can you share a little bit about how RSV hospitalization burden compares to flu and COVID-19 hospitalization burdens? Sure. Thanks for that question. Um, and again, um, in my my work at CDC, I, I specifically look at hospitalization burden of RSV as well as COVID-19. Um, what we know about um, from our surveillance platforms at CDC um, for RSV and flu is that the hospitalization burden among older adults can be comparable. It can be very similar during some of the respiratory seasons in the U.S. Again, this respiratory season defined as between kind of September, October through March through April. So depending on the year, we can see that RSV hospitalization and influenza hospitalization rates can be very similar. But in other years, we can see that flu can be appreciably higher than RSV among older adults. And in, even in some other seasons, we see that RSV can be higher than flu. So, um, so flu and RSV, while similar, they are different pathogens, and we have to treat them as such. Um, and then if we're looking specifically about COVID-19 and the rates of hospitalization among older adults, and what we do see is that the cumulative rates of hospitalization among adults 50 to 64 years and 65 years and older is higher than the cumulative rates of hospitalization for RSV and flu. Um, specifically, I can comment on flu and saying that the overall cumulative hospitalization rates for COVID-19 are higher than the cumulative end-of-the-season hospitalization rates for influenza over each of the previous five influenza seasons. So there is quite a burden um, uh, of uh, COVID-19-associated hospitalizations. But again, we cannot forget the burden that already existed um, related to RSV and flu. Great. Um, this one will start with you and then move to Robin. So when we think about the fall in respiratory disease, it seems like there's a strong likelihood that flu, RSV, and this year COVID-19 will all be circulating at the same time. And so I'm wondering if you can both speak about the challenges that this will present to those who work with older adults and, and really how will we be able to tell the difference? Will we be able to tell the difference? Lindsay, if you wanna start and then we'll jump to Robin. Sure. Great. Thanks. Sorry about that. I was on mute. Um, you know, I think that's a great question that Elizabeth is, is brought up. And I think many people are thinking that um, as this uh, fall season and the respiratory season starts up um, very soon. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we have about respiratory viruses overall, not just for COVID-19, is just that older adults, again, they can present atypically um, with flu and RSV. So it's even harder now, um, we have a third pathogen, SARS-CoV-2, that's now out there causing COVID-19. Um, and while we do have some data and studies out there telling us what are common symptom presentations, it, that is still something that we're still 
studying. That's still something that we're learning. Um, and so, uh, you know, there it will be a particular challenge for this season. There's a lot that is unknown about that clinical presentation. So we already have uncertainty and atypical presentations for flu and RC in older adults. And now we also have COVID. But I think that brings up, you know, the, the biggest thing here is that, you know, any any type of respiratory symptom in an adult, particularly this season, any shortness of breath, any concerning symptom in an older adult or any adult for that matter, it needs to be taken seriously. Um, and, you know, uh, adults and patients should be encouraged to talk to their primary care providers and, and get their assistance in determining what the next steps are should they be having concerning symptoms. Again, you know, adults and old particularly older adults, are very susceptible to these viruses. So it's incredibly important for them to seek um, medical advice and care as determined by their provider. Dr. Jump, would you like to add in here? Sure. Let me start off by uh, saying thanks for inviting me to be part of this presentation uh, and also to GSA and to Dr. Kim for her uh, uh, remarkable and in-depth knowledge about RSV. Um, I'm, I'm amazed at how you're able to just kind of rattle those studies and those numbers right off. That's uh, phenomenal. So I, I agree with everything that you've had to say. And I, I don't think that we're going to really be able to differentiate clinically between influenza and RSV and COVID-19. Uh, we certainly know that we, we can't use symptoms to differentiate between influenza and RSV. Uh, and then it's, it's going to be the same with COVID as well. So I think the best thing that we can do for our, both our community and our nursing home dwelling older adults is to test them. And we need to do COVID testing and influenza testing and RSV testing. And thankfully there are a number of platforms now that allow for all three of those to happen. Um, and depending on the circumstances, it might be worthwhile to consider doing like stepped testing or tier testing. And what I'm thinking about here specifically are people that are living in long-term care or assisted living environments where there may be a known outbreak or a known high community burden of influenza or COVID-19 at that point in time. And if that's the case, and you, if you don't have access to multiplex testing, so you can't test for all three viruses at once, it might be worthwhile to start off by doing, say, influenza, if you know that influenza is currently having an outbreak in that facility or that region. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, I think that leads nicely into the next question, which is where you have a, a wealth of information to share and, and knowledge, uh, which is what are some things that we can do to keep older adults healthy when it comes to so many respiratory viruses circulating, whether it be flu or COVID or RSV? Um, how can we keep older adults healthy? Sure. So <laughs> I think that we're, we're inundated with how to do this at this point, which is, um, you know, both Good and bad. Good that we had the knowledge. Bad for the circumstances. Um, as everybody knows, you know, washing your hands is, you know, are the, the top three things that we can all do to help prevent disease transmission. And this is because we, well, by washing our hands, we're washing off the fomites that we pick up on our hands and then touch our face with and then rub into our eyes or our nose or our into our mouth. And that's often how infection happens. Um, the other thing that we can all do in the community is to wear masks, which we're doing for the prevention of COVID-19 transmission, as well as other respiratory etiquette measures. And that includes covering our coughs and sneezes and doing those into our elbows or then into our hands. Um, and just trying to minimize the, the, the possibility of spread. What we're, Finding in the long-term care setting with the the regular implementation of masks as well as face shields is that we're not seeing a lot of, at this point, of transmission of COVID-19 from staff members to residents. And this is anecdotal information, but this seems to be um, patterns that I'm seeing emerging across nursing homes in general. You know, in the very initial Outbreaks that we had in the country when before we knew about COVID was had been introduced, there was staff to resident and resident staff transmission. But at this point, we're not seeing that. While we are seeing staff pick up the respiratory viruses is outside of patient or resident care activities. So when they're 
off duty or perhaps when they're you know taking a break and are taking their masks off to eat lunch and aren't practicing social distancing. So that's another big thing that we can all do is maintain our social distancing both out in public and also when we're at work. And also to be cognizant of what we're doing with our hands, with our arms, with our bodies. And so, for example, leaning on a counter may get our forearms covered in fomites if someone had recently been there before. So so trying to be cognizant of that. And it's a lot. This is, um, you know, I think that we're all entering the the fatigue state of trying to be vigilant about COVID. So a way that we can work on this together is to adopt an attitude of, I've got your back. You know, I'm, I'm here to help you. So when I see someone that when their mask is not correctly positioned, I let them know nicely, Hey, could you know, let's make sure that gets up over your nose. When I see people in the hospital that um, where I work, we have uh, PAPRs and I forget what PAPR stands for, but basically it looks like a bike helmet with a face shield and then a plastic bag that comes over the face shield and up under our chins. And it's, um, it's circulated air coming in. And so we're, we don't have to wear a mask because it's a self-contained fresh air unit. And every now and again, I'll see someone that maybe the, the plastic part of it isn't correctly applied. And I just tell them, you know, you need to make sure that gets up around, you know, under your chin and that your hair is pulled back out. And people appreciate that when it's given with a tone of, I'm here to help you. I want to protect you. I want to keep us all safe. And that's something that we can all do. We know that shaming doesn't work. And we know that encouraging and and um, being expressing gratitude for good behavior as well as modeling good behavior helps a lot. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of great gems are in there. Um, this is a, a period where respiratory illness in older adults has been at the forefront of a lot of people's minds the last few months. Um, but there there do still exist gaps in understanding. And so, I'm wondering, um, we'll start with you, Dr. Jump, what you think is a, a gap in understanding or an opportunity to do more research in respiratory illness in older adults? Uh, so like I said, we'll start with Dr. Jump and then Dr. Kim, we'd like to hear from you too. Sure, thank you. Um, and I should, before we get into the gaps and knowledge question, I wanted to suggest also that for, um, in all healthcare settings, you know, especially with COVID-19, in addition to hand hygiene and masks and face shields, we also need to be wearing gowns uh, when we're interacting with, with our patients and our residents and um, to be changing PPE appropriately in between patients or residents, whoever it is that we're caring for. So that um, you know, we've, I, th- I think that these have been well versed or, or the, the idea of, of PPE and how to use it has been um, certainly put out there in the public and taking it off is also important um, and taking it off properly. So we don't, don't contaminate ourselves and doing hand hygiene practices uh, after we doff our PPE. So for gaps, um, gosh, there's a lot. Uh, one of the things that Dr. Kim talked about earlier was the differences in older adults and children in terms of the amount of snot that they produce. So we have a number of studies that are looking at uh, sample collection for what's what's the best way to get a good respiratory sample from an older adult. We know that nasopharyngeal swabs are accurate, but they're also really uncomfortable to do. And especially for someone who is getting repeated testing, like they might be in a nursing home where people are getting tested on a regular basis, like every week. And also for people that have dementia and where they might be combative over having someone, you know, stick something painful in their nose. These are, are difficult things to keep on doing. So one kind of pragmatic area that I think we should put our resources into is to figure out what's a reasonable way to get good testing. I'm anxious to see what we learn more about with antigen testing for COVID-19 because that is an interior NARES sample and how that compares to some of the samples that we've had to collect for influenza and RSV. Is it possible for us to use a anterior NARES or even oral pharynx or tongue swab for some of our residents and some of our older adult patients to get a decent amount of 
sample. And these are challenges because we, as Dr. Kim pointed out earlier, there's uh, the viral load for RSV is less than what we get uh, in younger adults and in children. Um, other areas, of course, for research are an RSV vaccine. And as Dr. Kim said, those are under development. Um, and I think that there's some going into clinical trials, if not already. One of the questions that we'll need to answer once we have a working vaccine is, you know, how do we kill administer that along with influenza and then um, along with the COVID-19 vaccine? So those are going to be some additional challenges. Do we have to worry about the kind of interfering immune responses? We know that giving, for example, the pneumococcal vaccines and influenza together works just fine. And I hope that we'll find some evidence or have some evidence to show that those that's true for um, RSV and COVID-19 vaccines, too. Um, and I'll stop there and give Dr. Kim a chance to jump in. Sure. Thank Dr. Jump. Um, you know, coming from the public health perspective, I think um, some of the things that we are looking to learn more about RSV and other respiratory viruses, including COVID-19, are um you know, what are the short-term and long-term consequences of those infections and the hospitalization? So what happens to an older adult after being hospitalized with RSV or COVID-19 or, or flu? I think flu is done. Um, they do have um, studies that have already documented these impacts. Um, but for RSV, it's something that we know is an epi epidemiologic gap or a research gap that we haven't really characterized very well. And for COVID-19, um, those studies are underway. Um, so the questions are, do, do older adults get more frail? Um, can they do all the activities of daily living that were that they were doing prior to the infection um, and or being hospitalized? So that, that's one kind of gap that we have and, and an opportunity to do more research. Um, other things, you know, again, I'm a, I, I conduct hospitalization surveillance, so, so a lot of my answers about surveillance, but, you know, really just documenting the burden of disease well, documenting what, what are the rates um, of hospitalization, what are the rates of outpatient clinical visits due to RSV, due to COVID-19, um, you know, what are those? And, and can we, you know, then can we compare them? And then can we look and see, you know, what are the differences between those two pathogens, as well as other pathogens that are circulating. You know, we can't forget that although we're talking about flu and RSV and COVID-19, there are several, many more pathogens out there, particularly during the respiratory viral season, which is starting, you know, any minute now, um, you know, human metanumovirus, adenovirus, all of those viruses also cause illness in older adults. We can't forget that. Um, so, you know, these platforms, these surveillance platforms that we have at CDC, you know, trying to figure out how to document that burden among many other respiratory viruses and not just one by itself. Um, you know, specifically, one of our questions is, you know, what are the rates of mortality on a population level? Can I, can we, can we actually put a rate on that? So how many deaths can we say are associated with RSV? We can't say, we, we can't probably say that we could, that RSV might have caused the death. It's very hard for us to say and attribute RSV as a cause of death with the data that we get. We can say it's associated if someone had an RSV positive test and then maybe died within 14 days or so. Um, but, you know, that's a gap. You know, how many people actually die due to RSV? Um, and also, obviously, COVID-19 and flu. These are all questions, I think, that are applicable to, to all the respiratory viruses. So what is that um, in hospital mortality rate? What about community-associated deaths? There are many deaths that occur in the community, um, and, and, and they might be attributed to a respiratory virus, and we just don't know what those viruses are. So how do we, how do we learn about those? Um, I think Dr. Jump got to this about correlates of protection. Um, you know, there are vaccines, and that gives us hope. But, you know, how do we make sure those vaccines are working? How do we know that the vaccine is actually stimulating the immune response the way it should be to actually impart um, protection for someone who gets a vaccine? So those are studies that's a bit more, um, you know, immunity studies that are happening, um, but those are very important. And again, you know, when vaccine happens, it's not just stopping surveillance. We're going to have to continue so that we can see, you know, what is that impact of a vaccine or even an antiviral? Um, you know, what is the impact of the vaccine at a population level? What are the rates of hospitalization prior to vaccine introduction? What happens 
to the rates when they go down. Um, you know, also questions of herd immunity. So if a vaccine is coming out for RSV um, in older adults, you know, does that impart herd immunity? Does that somehow protect indirectly children? What are their rates then? Does it go down? And so these are things that we seek to, to look at at CDC through our, our, our um, surveillance platforms to demonstrate that um, vaccine will hopefully have an impact um, to the U.S. population. And so, you know, strong surveillance um, is really important to ensure that we can show an impact of these vaccines, just like the way we did for pneumococcal vaccine um, with PCB13 and PCB7. Thank you. There are a lot of opportunities for us to increase our understanding of a number of issues. Um, I think recognizing that there are a number of unknowns and recognizing that um, that does create some anxiety, especially for this fall. I'm wondering if you could help us end on um, sort of a more positive note. And I'm wondering what you are most optimistic about related to our collective understanding of and management of RSV, flu, and COVID-19 in older adults over the coming year. Um, Dr. Jump, would you like to start us off with that? Sure. Um, I, I'm especially inspired by, by two things. One is the way in which we've seen infection prevention and control efforts in nursing homes ramp up and become so effective. And this has been, of course, the staff bearing the brunt of this, having to to, to start working in gowns and gloves when that, with everybody and the face shields and the mask, which is not something that is typical for long-term care because it's supposed to be a home-like environment. And I don't wear PPE in my home. It's been amazing to see those efforts. Um, and it's also been joined by the, by the administrators, by the physician and other medical staff, as well as by the residents and their families. And it's been especially hard for the residents and their family members who haven't been able to visit as much as they want or with the freedom that they used to be able to. And I feel like people have done a great job of understanding and adjusting, and we need to keep encouraging uh, their patients and recognizing that we're all doing the best that we can. Um, the second thing that I'm so inspired by is that, you know, from from December until September, we have vaccines that are in clinical trials for COVID-19 already. That's amazing that, that we've, it, it's taken less than a year to get something from literally from, a, you know, bench top to arms. And I'm, I think that we will continue to build on that knowledge for COVID-19 as well as for RSV and influenza to keep getting better and better vaccines that are able to yield long-lasting immunity. Um, you know, it, one of the things about influenza, of course, is it changes every year, so we have to adjust the vaccine every year. RSV, when people get a uh, you know an infection, it seems that we stay immune for a time, but immunity wanes with RSV. So this might be one of those things where we have to get a new vaccine every. So often, whether that's every year or every five years or every 10 years, I think isn't known yet, but that's something that we'll, we'll uncover. Um, and the same thing for COVID. It's going to be a while before we know exactly how to do this. And it might be that it takes us a few years to get that sorted. But won't that be a lovely thing to have to figure out is how often do I give a successful vaccine? <laughs> Thank you. Great. Dr. Kim? Yeah, I don't have much more to add to what Dr. Jump said. I think, you know, what's, what's made me wake up every morning, you know, for the last five years working on adult RSV, um, is learning, um, that and knowing that there are over 35 vaccine products in the clinical pipeline right now for RSV. Um, that is a large number of products that, um, the companies are, are trying. Um, and for, for older adults, there are a couple that are pretty, pretty far along, um, in the clinical, uh, um, clinical pipeline. So I think even, you know, phase 2B, potentially in phase 3. Um, so, you know, all the work that everyone is doing, um, is just, that's the heartening part about it, particularly with RSV. And, and that's technically, you know, what I work on at, at, at CDC. Um, and I, I agree with everything um, Dr. Jump said about the COVID-19 vaccine and how rapidly, um, you know, people have come together to get that um, into clinical trials so fast. 
um, it's kind of unheard of how quick it's, it's, it's happening. Um, you know, and, and I also think, you know, what's heartening is having um, these webinars and having partners and people that are listening on right now that are truly interested in learning more about other respiratory viruses. You know, flu, we all know, go get your flu vaccine. Flu vaccine is becoming available. It's important to do that. That's an important thing to protect older adults this season. Um, we don't have a vaccine yet for RSV, but when it comes, you know, hopefully, um, again, the message will be, you know, protect yourself, go get the RSV vaccine um, when it when it completes, you know, phase three and is licensed for use um, and to save for COVID-19. Um, but yeah, the most optimistic thing that I have related is just the fact that vaccines are coming. Um, and with those vaccines, hopefully we'll be able to prevent a lot of hospitalizations and a lot of uh, mortality um, and, and protect our older adults um, from these serious outcomes. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much for all of these responses and all of the information and, um, and hope for the future that you've shared. On behalf of GSA and our speakers, I'd like to thank our participants very much for being here today. And thank you also to Johnson & Johnson Health Systems again for providing support for this program. Just a reminder that we are recording the session and we'll send you an access link by email once the recording is available. We don't have a lot of slides, but we do have some resources that we'll share soon. And you can download a copy of the presentation slides, including those resources, from the handout section on the right side of your screen. Before we move to the question and answer portion of this program, please know that a webinar survey will automatically launch after the webinar. And in an effort for continual improvement, we would love to hear your thoughts. Please provide feedback by clicking the survey link that pops up at the end of the webinar. So with that, we will move to questions and answers. Just a reminder that you can type and send your questions using the questions feature in the dashboard that's accessible on the right-hand side of your screen. We will not be using the raised hand feature today, so if you have a question, please be sure to use the questions panel. We will do our best to address as many questions as possible, time permitting. All right, we have a few coming in, so please continue to put your questions in that section. Um, as those questions come in, I'd like to start with one for Robin. I'm wondering if there's anything we learned about infection control with COVID that did not work. In other words, is there anything that we can put aside as a mitigation strategy for respiratory illness this fall? That's a really good question. Um, I don't, I, I think what we know about infection control and prevention for COVID is that uh, vigilance is, is important. We need the gowns and gloves when we're doing direct care as well as the masks and face shields. Um, and it, it seems that yeah, there, there's, a, there's been a lot of evidence coming out fast and furious and going back and forth, but I, I, what seems to work best are face shields and masks because it keeps us from touching our face and introducing fomites from, you know, the back of our gloved hand onto our face that later gets swept into a mucosal surface. Um, and I'm not, I'm drawing a blank on things that, that didn't work in terms of infection control and prevention. It's good Dr. to know Kinnan, that what we have, have <laughs> it's good to know that what we have works. So. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that, I, you know, that we're that people are doing is a lot more surface cleaning with wipes, uh, and and it's it's usually um, disinfecting wipes. It does not need to be bleach in the case of um, COVID nineteen, but disinfecting wipes, uh, something that breaks down the the uh, the envelope on that protein or on the the proteins on that um, on the envelope of the virus. Another question that we have is, um, at what point does it make sense to seek care for symptoms? Dr. Jump, do you have a thoughts on that? I do, and it, it depends a lot on the individual, but certainly if someone is having trouble breathing, 
increased shortness of breath or they feel like they just there's they, they just can't quite take a good deep breath um that's a good time to go seek care um other indications for care um and, and it's, it's challenging in older adults so for the older adult that lives independently at home um if they are feeling especially fatigued body aches can't get out of bed um i wouldn't wait on that either if it's time to, you know, if, if it's been a couple hours and things just aren't getting turned back around, it's time to ask for help. Because the sooner that we get help, the, the, the often the less severe an infection can be. And I'm thinking here mostly about flu because we know that the sooner we get uh, medications for flu, the better people do. With some of the um, the emergency use authorization medications that we have available for, available for COVID, that may also be the case. There are, of course, not yet um, effective treatments for RSV, but supportive care is still a, a good thing to start doing early and can help keep people from um, you know, losing function. And that, of course, is a huge priority for us in the care of older adults. When I think about people in long-term care settings, these are folks that um, you know, if, if there's a concern for respiratory virus, Contact precautions, uh, respiratory droplet precautions, transmission space precautions need to happen right away. And even if it, you know, if this is happening at six o'clock on a Friday night, the immediate response is to get get the people into the appropriate transmission based precautions, and then we can get the test the next morning if we need to. But it's important to take that immediate action first to protect everybody else in the facility. Um, that's all that's coming to mind at, at this moment. Uh, Dr. Kim, do you have anything to add? No, I, I think you've got most of the highlights there. Thanks. We have a question that just came in. Are there any effective treatments for any specific viral pathogens? Well, sure. Um, like, you know, we certainly have good treatments for influenza with oseltamivir, uh, that's kind of the mainstay. Um, and there's, I've forgotten the name of the drug already, but there's a, um, an inhaled influenza treatment as well. Um, and that also seems to be effective. The oseltamivir is the one that I certainly had the most clinical experience with. And we use that both for treatment and for prophylaxis when there is a, a known influenza case in a nursing home facility. This works, um, and I can say that clinically, I can also say it personally. I had influenza a couple of years ago. Um, I had, I, I went to bed on a Wednesday night. My sweet husband went out and got me some oseltamivir. And by Friday, I was Boy Scout camping with my six-year-old. And uh, it was a miracle <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so that one's fantastic. Um, we don't yet have specific treatments that are Directed towards COVID-19, remdesivir seems to have a signal that's showing that it's helpful. Um, the convalescent plasma seems to have some signal showing that it's helpful as well. And these both have emergency use authorization through the FDA. Um, for RSV, there are not yet treatments that we can use um, specifically that may change. And I think that um, the vaccine is probably going to be our, our biggest uh, our, our, our best effort there. Um, and, it, you know, and I think that um, one of the reasons perhaps why RSV treatment has not been as, it hasn't gotten the attention perhaps that it did, for, like influenza did, is because there has not been until recently good testing available for RSV. I think that one of the, 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 the things that COVID has done for us is really emphasized rapid diagnostics, including for respiratory viruses. So now we can know quickly, does somebody have influenza or RSV or human metanumavirus or COVID-19 or one of the myriad of other viruses that we have to worry about? And that can start direct treatment or supportive care. And it also helps us understand from a public health perspective, the true burden of these diseases and helps prioritize which is should we start putting at the top of the list to try to get a specific treatment for. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kim, is there anything you'd like to add to that? So Dr. Jump covered it. Um, you know, again, for RSV, it's just supportive management. So, you know, if a person needs oxygen, um, you know, giving them supplementary oxygen, but um, 
yeah, she covered it very well. Fantastic. Um, so one last question, knowing um, that we've got some experience behind us with influenza vaccine, are there lessons learned um, both in a long-term care setting and the community setting, um, some best practices that we can take and implement for an eventual, hopefully, RSV or COVID vaccine? So this is this is Dr. Kim. I can talk about more of the community setting. I think Dr. Chop can talk more about the long-term care facility setting. Um, you know, I think I think it's going to be any vaccine introduction is going to require a lot of education. It requires acceptance by the community, by the general public, um, and so there's going to be a lot of education communication um, that will need to be done. Um, for any vaccine, not just RSV when it comes out, but also for COVID. Um, and, and I think that's going to be the biggest important thing, because even if we get a vaccine and the clinical trials show it works, if the community or if, um, you know, the public doesn't understand why they should get the vaccine or feels like it won't work, um, then, you know, it won't work because we won't be able to have as many people that need to be vaccinated to get it, right? So so I think the biggest challenge something that we learn is um, from an early, early start when we hear about vaccines is to go ahead and engage with as many stakeholders as possible. Um, you know, so this is one of the, you know, AGS um, is, is one of our stakeholders, um, you know, clinicians, stakeholders, you know, getting as many people, getting their input, you know, about how to target the vaccine, how to communicate what a vaccine is, why it's going to be helpful for you. You know, that's incredibly important. And I, I think that's something that underscores everything. Um, we have to be transparent. We have to be um, clear. And we have to show why it is important for everyone to get a vaccine, um, depending on what target group it is. Um, and so that, to me, is a big, big issue um, and a big lesson that we can learn. Um, I mean, it's always a challenge with flu. We know adults have far worse vaccine coverage and immunization rates as compared to children. Um, and, and you know, it's education. It's educating those older adults, educating their doctors, their nurse practitioners, the clinicians who will actually give them, the nurses who will give them those vaccines. If we have those Everyone who cares for an older adult, you know, in some ways needs to be a champion of vaccines. So we can't forget that um, at every encounter that we have. Um, so I think the challenge is always going to be, you know, clear communication and an adequate uh, campaign strategy, um, communication campaign strategy for, for vaccines. Thanks. So that was excellent. And um I agree wholeheartedly. Getting people to accept the vaccine is so important. Uh, and and I just thinking in terms of some of the more pragmatic ways that we can do that, we know that for influenza, that even if it doesn't, even if the vaccine that we have for a given season is not a great match, it still helps. It still helps mitigate the symptoms and the severity of disease. So what I tell people is, yeah, you know, it's a poke in your arm and it hurts and you might, you know, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable the day after, but that's so much better than getting the flu. And the other thing that I tell them regarding influenza vaccine is that it also helps mitigate the risk of diseases down the road of influenza, you know, that maybe it's not a great match this year, but maybe it'll be a good match for the viral strain that's going to come out in three years in which case you've already got the antibodies and you're protected, which is a great thing. So that message of the, I think that the benefit or the potential benefit of vaccines is important. Um, you know, we're just getting to hear some information about how COVID-19 might mutate and letting people know that there, that there may need to, there's a need to probably get more than one vaccine at some point is okay. And just, you know, don't wait for the perfect one. Just, do what you can now to protect yourself and everybody else in the community. And that's going to be the same for RSV. Part of the reason why people are so emphasizing influenza vaccine this year is to prevent that respiratory illness on top of COVID-19. And when we have an RSV vaccine, we're going to need to be able to do that same thing. You know, 
protect yourself from everything that, that you can. Um, and some more pragmatic things to do to help with this is that we have to uh, get our staff to accept the vaccine too. And I feel like most healthcare workers accept their influenza vaccine, do it, no big deal. It's for their own health, for their family's health, and for the health of the people for whom they care. Long-term care is the worst in terms of healthcare sites about who about this the coverage of uh, vaccines among sorry the, the staff getting the vaccine. I don't know the reasons for this. I know that hospitals have had great success with making vaccines for employees mandatory. And I think that that's something that we should be doing in long-term care as well. And and in fact, um, I support the um, American Medical Directors Association. Uh, There's an Earth Society of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care statement about making making it mandatory for long-term care employees to get an influenza vaccine. Something that we can all do when the vaccine becomes available is make sure that uh, we model to our other staff members that we are getting it and also to offer it to our employees or have our health systems offer it to our employees and to do that on all shifts. And that can be done by, you know, some catching that three or four o'clock shift and making sure that there's someone there to get the vaccine then. And also by having someone come in early to get the vaccine at the end of the night shift um, so that we get as many needles into arms as we can. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you both for your wealth of knowledge and for sharing it with us today. We've covered a wide amount of information, wide ground, and um, I hope that our participants found the information as helpful as I did. Um, So we have a couple of slides with some resources on them. I would encourage you to download the handouts. We have these slides posted in the handouts so that you'll have access to um, both GSA resources and some of our partner resources that have specific information about COVID-19 as well as RSV um, that we think you may find helpful. So please download those handouts. Again, we'll have this posted for you to share with colleagues, the recorded version, and you'll get a notification of that once um, we have that up and running. We appreciate all of you being here today. We appreciate your participation. And that concludes our program for today. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.